Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Philip Dwyer. He is professor in the School of Humanities and Social Science and the director of the Center for the Study of Violence at the University of Newcastle in Australia. He has published wildly on the revolutionary and Napoleonic eras, including a three-volume biography of Napoleon. And today we're going to talk about uh, a volume for which he is a ed an editor, The Darker Angels of Our Nature, Refuting the Pinker Theory of History and Violence. So, Dr. Dwyer, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. So, um, let's start with this. What is Steven Pinker's argument about trends in violence across history? So Pinker's main argument is that the further back in time we go in history, the more violent it was. So that prehistory, according to Pinker, was the most violent uh, era in human history. And the more we progress into the modern era, the less violent we become. So that Pinker argues the 20th century is the least violent century in human history, which might sound a bit counterintuitive to those people who are familiar with the two world wars and the genocides that took place during the 20th century. But Pinker counts uh, deaths as a proportion of global population. So he makes his figures look uh, smaller than they possibly are. In any event, this is his main thrust, that we are heading towards a, a far less violent future than uh, we were in the past. Mm -hmm. He's not, he's not the only one who thinks this, by the way. There are a number of other historians. I should correct myself. There are a number of other social scientists who also argue this, like uh, Azar Gatt, uh, who's at Jerusalem, and uh, Manuel Eisner, who's a professor of criminology at uh, Cambridge. They both uh, argue uh, for a long-term uh, decline in violence. Mm -hmm. So, is there any problem with how Pinker defines violence and the kinds of violence he includes in his, I, I was about to say book, but in fact it's two books, he does the same in Enlightenment now, but with the kinds of violence he decides to include and the ones he <clears throat> uh, dismisses, let's say. Well, I, th I think Pinker's... Um definition of violence is really quite narrow uh, and we can talk about this uh, a little later if you like in in comparison to how uh, historians and even other social scientists might uh, look at violence so he he focuses on two kinds of violence in particular homicides and deaths in warfare um, and this is and this is how he measures uh, violence or how he attempts to measure violence over time uh, and you know i this this focus on homicide and deaths in warfare means that there is 
little scope for considering other ways of violence, other means of violence. Um, and it, it essentially um, centers violence uh, very much on the aggressor, the person who kills, uh, rather than on, uh, for example, the victims or indeed uh, other kinds of violence, which we can also talk about. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how would historians define violence and could you give us perhaps a few examples of violence that you will also you would also add to the picture here well historians tend to tend to define violence much more broadly and and as um, the study of violence has been around for quite some time at least since the 1960s right into the 1970s um, but it's really only come into um, its own, if you like, since about the last 10 or 15 years or so, where, where the history of violence has become a topic in and of itself. And historians who do uh, violence look at uh, two types. There, there's interpersonal violence, and that can mean all sorts of things from child abuse, sexual assault, um, um, and in, uh, of, of course, homicide, and increasingly what might be called psychological uh, aspects to violent behaviour, so that bullying and harassing uh, can now also be considered by some at least as forms of violence. Now, these might not be as lethal as some forms of violence, but nevertheless, they can lead to physical harm. And they can, in some extreme ex uh, cases, lead to uh, suicide, as we've seen with bullying uh, online and bullying in school, for example. So that too is considered to be a form of violence. Suicide is also considered to be a form of violence. So we're looking at not just the physical these days, we're also trying to incorporate the psychological aspects of violence and also the, the psychological and physical aftermaths of violence. So violence just doesn't stop after someone has been assaulted, for example, that violence can leave um, a trauma within that person that can persist for many, many years and make that person's life extraordinarily complicated. Mm -hmm. So we have much, a much broader view of violence than I think uh, Pinker does, who, as I've said, has a quite narrow um, definition of what he thinks violence is. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and can violence really be accurately measured across history? I mean, uh, to what extent should we be careful about the types of sources we have available and how data was gathered and analyzed now? Well, this is the, this is the thing. So Pinker believes that the statistics he presents are sort of hard and solid facts. 
And the problem is the further back in time we go, the less uh, reliable becomes any kind of uh, evidence or data that we might have. I mean, take the, the war in Iraq, uh, for example. We don't even know um, how many people accurately have died as a consequence of that 10-year-long uh, war. So how can we possibly know how many people were killed in battles, you know, in the early modern period, in the Middle Ages, in ancient times, often the figures presented to us by um, writers, chroniclers, historians from earlier centuries are grossly exaggerated and they're exaggerated in order to convey a sort of political message. So it's impossible to know uh, how many people died in a, a set piece battle, for example, and we even know less about how many people may have died as a result of interpersonal violence. The other problem is we don't have any accurate, really accurate figures about total populations until quite late in the day. So from about the 18th and the 19th century onwards, when modern states uh, begin to take uh, surveys of their populations, usually for taxation purposes. And if we don't know the exact number of people in a given population, then we can't calculate what the crime rate or the death rate is for any given population. Criminologists normally measure homicide rates, for example, by deaths in 100,000 of a population. Mm -hmm. Now, if we don't know what the population is, we can't accurately measure what the homicide rate is for any given period. And we haven't been able to do that um, uh, until about the last, let's say, 150, 200 years. Before that, it's guesswork. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with all of that in mind, uh, how can you be sure, for example, or perhaps not sure, but uh, why is it that in, in the book you and your co-authors suggests that people uh, that pinker might have exaggerated violence in the past well we think he has uh, we think he's grossly exaggerated violence in the past and he does it uh, in order to bolster his argument which is that the present is much more peaceful than the past um, the statistics he uses uh, are very unreliable i mean there are things like um a couple of uh, sources he uses, like, let me just um, um, think of the name of the book. One is called The Great Big Book of Horrible Things, uh, which is written by a self-proclaimed self atrocitologist who's an amateur historian and who has presented the reader with really exaggerated figures of deaths through warfare or, um, you know, cataclysmic events in the past. Um, and there are other things like a website he uses, which is called Death by Mass Unpleasantness, also put together by uh, an amateur historian. These are, these are not the kinds of sources and they're not the kinds of data that serious academics would use in order to demonstrate um, statistical accuracy in the past. So his sources at the start are dubious to say the least. 
And then he often, I have to say, sort of cherry picks his starter so that he will he will lean towards the higher end of any estimate rather than the lower end in order to again bolster his argument and he doesn't take into account uh, any contradictory or conflicting uh, sources that might um you know negate what he is trying to say so his his approach to statistics is as we would say uh, in australia very dodgy it's not not reliable mm-hmm. okay and but this is, presents his statistics as as hard and fast facts as though they're immovable as though they are somehow carved in stone as though statistics and numbers can't be manipulated and or interpreted in a particular way which is what you know statisticians do all the time mm-hmm. okay but ju- just to be clear on this point and since we've already mentioned here that uh, data from the past is unreliable to a certain extent i mean uh, can we definitely say that pinker is wrong and that violence in the past was lower than he claims or that with uh, with the data that he uses and we have available we can't really be sure about it well historians historians have come most historians have come out to debunk the kinds of figures that pinker uses we can't i'm not i'm not trying to suggest that the past wasn't violent of course it of course it was there were some absolutely catastrophic events that took place in the past um you know the romans carried out uh, genocidal attacks against the carthaginians of course the aztecs committed uh, human sacrifice or practiced human sacrifice um the crusades uh, engendered terrible uh, massacres against muslims and jews Uh, all of these things of course happened in the past but they have to be placed in uh, perspective and he's i mean with we you know there there are periods in in any country's past which are going to be more violent than others and what he's done is focused in on some of the m- most violent periods in human history and um blown out of proportion some of the figures surrounding them and has then argued that the past was uh, much more violent than it really was for example he talks about the medieval period as though it were extraordinarily violent in fact it was probably much less violent than the early modern period in the 16th and 17th century where rates of homicide rates of interpersonal violence in part as a result of the reformation and religious tensions really reached a peak in western europe in the 16th and 17th century so you can't argue that medieval past was much more violent than the early modern period when the statistics and what we know about these two periods tell us something that's completely different and most of the punishments that he describes taking place supposedly in the medieval period were in fact invented during the early modern period 
And that was only for a relatively short space of time, let's say 150, 200 years maximum. And after that, violence declined again um, to quite low rates. By the end of the 17th century, for example, we have homicide rates in Western Europe, which are pretty much the same as they are today. That is around one in 100,000 per population. And that in itself, you know, really um, raises all sorts of questions about why that's the case, the role of the state uh, in regulating uh, violence between people, um, whether it indeed was the state or whether other factors might have played a role in reducing uh, violence, interpersonal violence. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily complex question, and I'm afraid Pinker um, has presented us with an extraordinarily simplistic and misleading uh, answer to that problem. Mm -hmm. So are there specific kinds of violence for which we have solid evidence that they've been on the rise recently? I don't know if you want to talk specifically about the examples I have here that I took from the book, like contemporary slavery and human trafficking and violence facilitated by the internet, or if you want to explore other examples, please feel free to do so. Yeah, look, it's it's very, I mean, one of the problems that we have, uh, both you know, criminologists and historians, is trying to uncover um, hard and fast statistics around interpersonal violence, especially uh, when we're talking about domestic violence, sexual assault, um, rape and child abuse. And we don't really know the true extent of those kinds of um, crimes because they take place behind, for the most part, they take place behind closed doors. And we know that they are greatly, greatly underreported to the authorities for all sorts of different reasons. Women don't necessarily want to um, make a complaint to the police about their husband beating them uh, for fear, for example, of what the reprisal might be, for fear of uh, having to go to court uh, all sorts of all sorts of different reasons, so that we think possibly only about, and it depends again, it varies from one country to the, the next. But in Western, in you know, affluent countries, we think that about only 10% of domestic violence and sexual assault cases are actually reported to the police. Now there are some. Um, historians like Joanna Burke, for example, at Birkbeck, who believes that sexual assault and sexual violence is on the rise in the West since the 1960s and is uh, not in decline, as Pink would argue. And this, in part, um, is a result of uh, better reporting. So the police do have a better idea of what's going on out there. And more cases are appearing before the courts and more and more women, especially in the last 10 years or so, have been prepared to uh, come, come out and uh, make their assault uh, public, for example. Um, 
there are also, and modern slavery is another example. Now, Pinker dismisses these figures. The International Labour Organization estimates that about 40 million people around the world at present, I think this was a 2018 figure, are in some kind of coerced labour. Now, that can vary enormously from one individual to the next, but about a third of those are um, in some kind of uh, sexual enslavement, usually uh, women and young girls. So they've basically been lured to another country on the promise of some kind of work and have found themselves uh, in a brothel and have been unable to uh, escape. Now, again, we don't, we just have guesstimates. We don't have any accurate figures. Um, and we do believe, however, there are now more slaves in the world than during the whole of the Atlantic slavery movement, which took place, of course, over a much, much longer period of time. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily want to compare these two. It's a, it's a, it's a false uh, comparison, if you like, because the Atlantic slave system and plantation slavery was extraordinarily brutal and often led to the deaths of those who were enslaved. This isn't necessarily the case for modern slavery. But people are nevertheless being coerced. They are often living in very poor conditions. They have no rights to speak of and can be physically abused, often are physically abused if they attempt to speak out or attempt to escape. So there are two very different kinds of violence going on here. And finally, there is um, the internet, of course. So the New York Times did a study some years ago of the numbers of uh, pedophile images on the internet, which have just exploded over the last 10 years or so. Uh, what we thought back you know, 10 or 15 years ago when the internet was really getting into its own, there were about a million images of child pornography on the internet and now we think there it's like you know i i can't remember that off the top of my head but it was either 20 million or 40 million images of these um, horrible images now does that mean that there are uh, more children being abused than before or is it simply that it's more accessible does that mean that there are more pedophiles now than ever before or simply that they are better organised and have networks and are able to better exploit uh, children than they have been in the past, because the internet makes whatever you do into sort a sort of international, um, you know, movement of, of sorts. It's not quite the word I'm looking for, but you know, sort of know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the world wars specifically, do you think that it is really a good approach to evaluate relative death tolls, just that and perhaps other kinds of violence people were exposed to during that period of time, or are the absolute numbers also relevant? Um, well, absolute numbers are relevant. I think you can compare, of course, uh, uh, numbers who were killed during the world wars to total global populations if you want to. 
But then you have to do that for everything that you take into account. And Pinker doesn't do this. He will do it sometimes and not on other occasions. So he look, he'll narrow in on a massacre that may have taken place in prehistoric times or violence that is supposedly carried out in uh, hunter-gatherer societies in various parts of the world and calculate that the rates of violence and the rates of homicide were extraordinarily high, sometimes 60 and 100 in 100,000, because he's only measuring that within a local population. And then when it comes to the Second World Wars, the First and Second World Wars, he decides to do that on a global scale and then dismisses the death rates during the Second World War as being nothing more than a blip on the statistical map because it's, um, it is small in comparison to the total world population. But what he should be doing is looking at that within the population of Central Europe, where the vast majority of the killings occurred between 39 and 45, for example, or focusing in on the population of East Asia and Southeast Asia, where the Japanese also uh, committed uh, you know, atrocious, atrocious horrors against those uh, populations. So you can't you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. He's got to he's got to be um, uh, consistent in the way he examines these total numbers, and then to argue. I mean, the Holocaust doesn't even make uh, it doesn't even somehow um, make it onto his horizon for some reason, which I find really quite odd because Pinker is, after all, Jewish. To not take the Holocaust into account as an extraordinary event in and of itself, I find really odd. But to then think of the Second World War and the deaths, again, we don't really know, 80 million possibly worldwide during this, this six or seven years of conflict, and dismiss it as nothing more than a statistical aberration, I find almost offensive in some ways. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, talking again about uh, past history, do you think that Pinker gives enough historical and cultural context to violence in past history? No, I don't. I think he does that. I don't think he understands uh, really what violence is historically, and he certainly doesn't understand history. So he has, a, he has, and I hate to say this, he has an almost undergraduate level understanding of what history is, which is that, that not very sophisticated. So he just, he take he thinks facts are history, when in fact, um, you know, social, political, cultural movements can be quite complex and violence in one part of the world at one particular time might be very different in another part of the world at the same time. But also you have to, you have to try and understand how people living in a particular place in a particular time thought of violence. And I have to say that the vast majority of people up until about two or 300 years ago, I would argue, accepted violence as a normal way of resolving conflict and problems, both between states, but also between individuals 
uh, who may have clashed. So it's only quite recently that violence has been considered to be bad, if I can put it that way. In the past, it was, it was you know, whether violence was good or bad depended on what side of the, the winning side you were, what side of the political spectrum you were. So in the medieval period, for example, let's say the 6th and 7th century, uh, violence from the elites downwards was considered to be a perfectly normal um, behaviour and a perfectly normal way of resolving whatever issues you might have. But then, to, but then to look at that and go, well, they obviously didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were talking about. It must have been terrible. It must have been really violent. Well, that's, that's to misunderstand what was going on at that time, I think. And it's difficult to get across those really complex notions of uh, violence and how it may have varied culturally across time, how it may have evolved over time to a, a, a broader reading public. And Pinker presents his readers with a very simplistic, a very black and white idea of what violence is, the past is bad, present is good sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So on the explanatory side of things, what do you think about Norbert Elias's civilizing process? Because that's one of the the theoretical yeah. frameworks, let's say, Pinker uh, draws heavily on. Yes, it's, it's one of the central pillars of his thesis. Um, so just to, just to very briefly summarise it, so that if you know, in case some of your listeners might not mm -hmm. uh, be familiar with Norbert Elias, who was a German Jew uh, who had to flee Nazi Germany in the 1930s, who emigrated first to Paris and then to London, where he started unemployed, started uh, visiting the British Library and um, started pulling out all sorts of books, uh, whatever took his fancy. And, and he began writing um, a sort of a cultural, psychological history of Western Europe from the Middle Ages onwards, in which he argued that um, men in particular, people in the Middle Ages were almost childlike in their emotional reactions, were unable to control themselves, were very impetuous, uh, hot-headed, uh, easily turned to violence, but that over time as um, customs and etiquette in particular uh, was introduced by the elites, uh, people contained their violence over a period of time. Often this was done through court societies in the early modern period, and then by the 17th century, you know, you have extraordinarily complex court rituals in which people are obliged to contain their emotions, indeed hide their emotions uh, for political purposes. And this is what Pinker dubs, oh, sorry, this is what Elias dubs the civilizing process, so that as Western civilization somehow progressed and became more complex and introduced much more complex rituals around how to behave, not only in court society, but in everyday life, 
then people supposedly became less violent. They somehow tamed their psychological, um, you know, beasts, if you like. It's, it's a really interesting theory. I mean, you have to understand that uh, Elias uh, was around about the same time as uh, Freud. He was probably influenced by a lot of uh, Freud's theories. Um, but it's also, it's, uh, it's also um, a theory of its time, if you like. So written in the 1930s, uh, published in German in 36, I think, but wasn't really published uh, in English and in French until the 1960s and 1970s. And it's then that it became uh, well known. But, but Elias's understanding of the Middle Ages was uh, really quite naive and his interpretation of medieval culture and medieval society and indeed early modern uh, culture and society has been critiqued as being um, really, really quite essentialist and basic. And, you know, we now know it was much, much, more, much, much more complex than Elias and Pinker make out. Um, and it's also a very sort of top-down, Western-centric approach to understanding history so that everything comes from above. It's the elites, it's court society that not necessarily impose their modes of behaviour on the middle classes and the working classes, but somehow inspire the working classes and the middle classes to imitate elite behaviour so that they too eventually began to modify their behaviours and became supposedly less violent over time. I mean, it's an extraordinarily complex uh, theory. It runs over hundreds of pages. Uh, it's it's um, engendered, um, you know, research centres and uh, an enormous amount of literature. So it's a bit disingenuous of Pinker to present Elias as someone that nobody's ever heard of before, possibly to some uh, some of his readers, but academics are very familiar with uh, his theories and with the literature. I mean, there's a very big literature around Elias, critiquing it as well, and there are people, you know, for and against Elias. But I, th I think um, the central pillar of Pinker's thesis, because it, it leans so heavily on Elias, means that the foundations are really quite shaky. I don't believe in the civilizing process. Uh, some people have tried to apply it to countries outside of Western Europe, um, but on the whole, it doesn't work for the rest of the world. So you can't, you can't have, uh, it, you know, for, at one stage, it, it passed as an interesting explanation of what might have happened in Western Europe, but you certainly can't use it for the rest of the world. And now um, historians are going, okay, enough of Elias, he's had his day, please can we come up with something new? This uh, does not suffice as an explanation for how behaviours and mentalities and attitudes may have uh, evolved uh, over time. Mm -hmm. And what do you think of Pinker's account of the Enlightenment? Uh, not much, uh, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Okay. Um, 
Well, uh, I think um, Pinker's idea of uh, the Enlightenment is a very old-fashioned one. It's it's an idea of the enlightenment that you may you might have come across in the 1950s and 60s, um, but since then there's been an, a massive uh, historiography on the enlightenment spread across many disciplines, from history to literature to politics to the history of science and sociology and economics and so on. And they've all adopted the Enlightenment as an, all of these subjects have adopted the Enlightenment as uh, as a study. And in the last decade or two in particular, the Enlightenment has been examined from all sorts of different perspectives, gender, race, uh, sexuality, and so on. And it's complicated the picture of the Enlightenment uh, tremendously. And m much of what we once took for granted in the Enlightenment uh, has been overturned. And we now think of it very differently. I think Pinker's understanding of the Enlightenment is that it was a movement away from superstition towards science and towards rationality. Okay, on the face of it, that sounds like a fairly benign thing to say. And in some respects, it's true. There's always a grain of truth in what uh, Pinker says. But then to use it as somehow a transforming uh, era in human history and that somehow these ideas spread, again, a very Western-centric notion that these ideas somehow spread from Western Europe to the rest of the world as though Europeans were enlightening the savages in the rest of the world, I think um, today borders almost on the racist. And I think it's a very naive way of looking at what was happening in the 18th century. And also Pinker, you know, so he uses this, so he uses this as a framework saying, okay, we invented rationality and somehow we invented science. And because we've invented science, we've somehow negated its opposite, which is superstition, which he always equates with religion, and the irrational. Well, I find this a little ironic because Pinker comes from a country, the United States, which at the moment, I believe, is uh, riven uh, politically between these two uh, opposing poles. One, you might say, is the rational and the scientific, and the other you might call the irrational and the religious. Um, so if the Enlightenment has taken place, it's somehow not reached certain parts of the world and certain parts of the United States in particular. One could argue I'm being a little unkind, but there's also this notion that somehow that rationality can somehow do away with violence. And I don't think it does. I think that's a misunderstanding of what violence is. If you look at violence simply as a tool that people use to achieve particular ends, we might not like their ends, but it's a tool that can be used to achieve those ends, then it has nothing to do with 
the, irras the rational or the irrational. It's simply um, something that some people are prepared to use in order to, um, you know, achieve their goals. And you might, we, we've, we saw this only a year ago with the assault on the US Capitol Hill in Washington when that mob uh, stormed the Capitol. Now, were they driven by rational or irrational thoughts? In, impossible to say, but they certainly had one goal, which was to use violence to overturn the election uh, procedure, procedures so that uh, Trump could be declared um, the winner. So mm -hmm. violence is being used for a specific purpose in that case. Mm -hmm. So what do historians know and have to say about the factors that play a role in uh, violence uh, trends? That's, that's a much more difficult question to answer, and that's one that we've, you know, a lot of us have been grappling with for a long time, including myself uh, personally. And a lot of this, I think, has to do with, I mean, once upon a time, the traditional argument, and this, I, I don't know if I should be mentioning Foucault, but in the 1970s and the 1980s, when the uh, French um, sort of cultural theorist slash sociologist uh, Foucault um, uh, uh, published his analysis of the state and modernity. He argued that um, the state uh, imposed its violence on society in order to uh, control violence and in order to, I mean, I'm, you know, summing up in very simplistic and in, and in inaccurate terms, but it was a very top-heavy approach to understanding how the state evolved over the centuries in order to monopolise violence through the armed forces, through police forces, through uh, institutions like courts of law and so on. And we now think that that's not necessarily the case and that civic society so how so communities and how they interact, how people interact with one another, um, have used the institutions of the state for their own purposes. So that's a different way of looking at violence. And the other way of looking at it is we find that in those societies, I mean, the I think the state is extraordinarily important in holding communities together. You need those institutions that it controls often in order for a society or a community to function well. And we've found, and the United States again is, is an example of this, in those communities and societies where there is a lack of trust and a lack of faith in those state institutions, whether it's the government or the police forces, then rates of violence uh, tend to be much higher because people are reverting to a do-it-yourself schema, if you like. If they can't rely on the police for justice, then they will go out seeking justice themselves. And that 
is very much, I think, what life in medieval Europe in the 6th and 7th, right through probably the 12th century, was like. You didn't necessarily trust the sovereign or the state or the elites, and you sought a justice yourself. It didn't necessarily have to be violent. You could go through through the courts uh, in order to achieve uh, your goals, but often uh, it was a, it was um, a, a sort of individual um, use of the system for one's own ends, and this is what we find in uh, you know countries like. South Africa, the United States, parts of Latin America, uh, not Asia, not so much anymore, but certainly parts of Africa where um, states are often corrupt, where there is no trust in the authorities, where the police are feared rather than respected. Uh, people tend to take things into their own hands and rates of violence tend to be much uh, higher. But also we have to, so, so there are two other things that we have to talk about. One is race and one is, uh, one is um, kind of the economic situation. Um, in the United States, again, um, violence tends to be much higher against, disem let, let me call them disempowered um, sectors of the population. And we find this all over the world where people uh, might be um, socially and economically marginalised, where they are not part, of, they don't feel like they're part of the system, they don't feel like they can be fulfilled through the system, um, then uh, they tend to use violence for their own ends. And look, no, I, I, I think, um, well, pot, I mean, the two, okay, the, the other factors that we have to take into account are what um, uh, some sociologists uh, dub structural violence, which in fact is poverty, and what uh, one uh, literary theorist by the name of Rob Nixon has described as a slow violence, which can be both, um, you know, the disproportionate things that happen to the environment and the toxic uh, chemicals that are poured into the atmosphere and which uh, don't have um, a rapid impact, but which can have a disastrous impact over a long period of time, not only on the environment, but also on people's health and on people's wealth. Uh, there are millions of people, if not billions of people, uh, who are living below the poverty line. Pinker doesn't think that this is a problem. He thinks, he accepts the statistic that um, people are living above the poverty line, even though the poverty line is um, determined at, I think, is it, what is it, $2 a day or $2.50 a day, some absurd... Yes, something like that, yes. Yeah, and as if that somehow negates the terrible conditions and the struggle that these millions of people must be enduring every day just to survive. So there are those uh, kinds of structural issues uh, which have 
extraordinarily detrimental effects on people's health, who, unlike in affluent countries, die much, much earlier than we do. Now, these aren't statistics that come up in uh, Pinker's death rates because they're not taken into consideration by governments, of course. If people die of so-called natural causes, then they're ignored. They don't, they don't come, they don't, you know, they're not taken into account. But if we start taking into account people that have died through the uh, consequences of some kind of uh, environmental poisoning or through malnutrition or indeed through displacement, the refugees, the millions of refugees that exists that exists in the world today and that have to live often in appalling conditions. If those people die, then uh, and we count them as a statistic uh, of violence, then we will have we would have a very different uh, rate, I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, I will then ask you just one last question. Uh, is the question, has there been moral progress, one that historians or researchers from any of the sciences can objectively answer? Um, <clears throat> look, I, no, I don't, think, I don't think we can. I think that's a very difficult question for historians to... And so I think it, I think they would have uh, in the 19th century and possibly before the Second World War, when people thought that there was a concept of progress. Um, and I don't we you know since the 1960s historians have not been able to accept this idea of progress. So it depends. I guess it depends in part upon what you mean by moral progress. What, what do you actually mean by that? Well, I mean, in that case, I mean, it's, it's hard also for me to say because I, I guess that we also have to look into the past from our contemporary moral perspective. But basically something like, uh, in this case, since we've been focusing on that rates of violence on the decline and, yeah, basically... Uh, something some i mean people being less violent toward one another would be an example yeah yeah look i i think i think my answer to that question is that um we are today and again it depends it, it all depends on who you are and where you live so if you are poor and living in a um, in Rio de Janeiro, then you will have encountered violence, uh, possibly several times uh, a week for all I know. And the same if you're living in uh, a, a shanty town in um, Cape Town uh, or any, any number of other uh, mega cities where there are huge conglomerations of poor, they will encounter violence on an everyday basis. For those enough who are fortunate enough to live in affluent countries and in the West and who are white, then we probably will never have encountered real violence possibly in our whole life. I mean, you know, I may have seen a few punch-ups in pubs, but I've never actually experienced uh, real violence face-to-face. Uh, -face. No one's ever tried to attack me. I've never 
had to encounter a war or this never been gun violence on the streets of uh, Newcastle at any stage. I mean, we live in we live in relatively peaceful societies. Um, but I would I think I would answer that question also by saying, I think today, if we are going to compare the present to what's uh, come before us, then I think we are differently violent, if I can put it that way. So every generation or every society and every culture is going to um, engage with violence in a different way than what the previous generation has done. Uh, so if I can give a personal example um, that some of your viewers, some of your listeners might be familiar with and others not, uh, I was uh, raised in a private uh, religious school growing up in the 1960s where corporal punishment was the norm. So we were um, caned uh, on a fairly regular basis, either on the hands or the buttocks in front of the class as a form of public humiliation and as a, as a, a, a form of pedagogy in some respects. Fear mm -hmm. was meant to instill in us a particular a way of behaving and a particular moral value and a particular way of seeing the world. Now, at some point in the 1980s, um, either parents or societies or governments decided that that wasn't a way to treat children and that was a banned in a lot of countries in the Western world. It's still practiced, however, in some parts of the world, including in Malaysia, in Egypt, for example, and I think it was only banned in Brazil uh, five or six years ago, maybe a little longer. So you can see that the, the world um, engages with violence uh, in different ways in different parts of the world, mm -hmm. but also the way we experience or engage with violence is very different to what our parents and grandparents did and so on and so on. So I think, and you know, we have ways of violence that are now very different and possibly inimaginable to the generations that have preceded us. And a good example, I think, is, uh, again, the internet and videos of um, decapitation by uh, Daesh uh, when it was uh, rampaging in Iraq in the Middle East only a few years ago. Now, these images were freely available on the internet and millions of people throughout the world watched these uh, videos. Um, so that's a different way of engaging with violence that there's a technological aspect to it that couldn't have existed in the past, of course. I mean, there are other ways of engaging with it in the past. People went to public hangings. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes as a form of entertainment, sometimes as a form of uh, religious uh, contrition, if you like, in the Middle Ages, uh, where the victim was meant to atone for his or her sins and make peace with God before entering paradise and thereby heal the community and the community took part in this ritual um, until the day when uh, that too was no longer considered in the 18th and the 19th, late 19th century, 
when when viewing public executions was no longer considered to be um, uh, morally progressive, if I can put it that way. So they're all, you know, we just, we interact and engage with violence in very different ways uh, from one period to the next and from one culture to the next. I think that's the best way to answer that question. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, I will be leaving a link to the book in the description box of the interview, The Darker Angels of Our Nature, Refuting the Pinker Theory of History and Violence. Uh, Dr. Dwyer, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find your work? Uh, my, my university website, uh, which you might want, want to... Uh, uh, provide the link to, otherwise uh, most of my books are available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for that interesting discussion. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there, starting at $1. If you could, it would be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. You can also support me on PayPal. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perugo Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein. Then Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Mark Blythe, Robert Winguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullet. Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan, Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nalek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Simon Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Jackery Fish and Tim Duffy. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Staffini, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, Thomas Trumbull and Noon Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Candivets. Thank you for all.